In this podcast, through the use of simple case studies of common conditions, we provide an approach to coming to a differential diagnosis and then working through it to get to a diagnosis. We'll cover relevant anatomy, pathology, history and clinical examination findings, as well as investigations to provide you with an approach to figure out what's wrong with your patient. Hi, uh, we are SICs currently rotating through surgery and we're here with Prof. Martin Brandt today. Um, I'm Nicolette Kork. And I'm Anami Stey. So Prof, what clinical case are we discussing today? Okay, so today we're going to talk about patients that have obstructive jaundice. So Prof, what is the first thing that you would notice about a patient with obstructive jaundice? So the differential diagnosis for obstructive jaundice is quite wide, uh, especially if one considers both benign and malignant causes. So I guess the first task is to confirm that the patient actually has obstructive jaundice and not hepatocellular or medical jaundice. If the patient is jaundiced, the follow-up question should be, what is the color of their stools and what is the color of their urine? If it's acolic or white stools and very dark or Coca-Cola colored urine, it's characteristic of obstructive jaundice. Which conditions could present this way? The easiest approach to this is to think of the classification of the causes of obstructive jaundice. So in other words, intraductal, intramural and extramural. In other words, within the bile duct lumen, within the bile duct wall, and then of course outside the bile duct wall. Once we have those three, we then subdivide them into benign and malignant. So what are the red flags that we need to look at when we meet these patients in the hospital? So for me, there's really four red flags in these, in these kind of patients. The first one is acute cholangitis or infection in the biliary tree. And then there's pruritus, which is really nasty itching, followed by coagulopathy or any other bleeding tendencies. And this coagulopathy actually includes things like bloody noses or even hematuria, not necessarily an upper GI bleed. And the fourth red flag is persistent renal dysfunction despite fluid resuscitation. So on history, what would we look for in these patients or what questions specifically would we ask? So specifically related to jaundice, we need to know the duration of symptoms, although often these patients will say that they did not know that they were jaundiced and that either a relative or one of their friends pointed it out. We also need to know if it's painful or painless because this works in with a differential diagnosis. And interestingly though, even though we call it biliary colic, The pain pain is rarely colicky in nature. It is usually a constant epigastric pain which can last for many hours. And there may be an association with ingestion of fatty meals. Previous episodes and how these episodes were treated. um, And then of course we look for risk factors. So do they know that they have gallstones or they were previously diagnosed with them? Have they recently had a bout of acute pancreatitis? Do they have a history of malignancies? And we also have to look for general conditions, such as HIV or TB. And then, of course, when one remembers the red flags, we need to ask about rigors. And important to remember that a rigor is not just fever. It is a feeling of a strong, quite a strong cold, accompanied by severe shivering. And often the patients will tell you that their teeth were chattering and that they got goosebumps when this happened. We ask about general skin itching. We ask about bleeding, as I said before, epistaxis, even uh, just easy bruising or hematuria. In terms of examination, what would you look for? So with the clinical examination, we first look for signs of obstructive jaundice. 
Interestingly, jaundice is the only condition which can cause yellow sclera, so this is a pretty specific sign to look for. We then follow this again with signs of red flags, so assess the vital signs for a fever, for tachycardia, for hypotension, so in other words, signs of potential sepsis. Look at the patient, are they actually physically scratching while they're talking to you? Do they have scratch marks on their skin? And then do they have general as opposed to localized pruritus? Um, though this is not specific to obstructive jaundice and may occur with primary skin conditions, chronic renal failure, pregnancy, lymphoma, even iron deficiency, dyneemia, and rare endocrine causes such as hyper or hypothyroidism. In the setting of jaundice, we assume that the itching is as a consequence of the jaundice. And then we look for bruising. This can be very subtle um, and can be also very non-specific. We also complete the general exam as is relevant to your patient's history. So if they are known to have HIV, we look for signs of advanced HIV. We look for signs of TB. And then we move into the organ examination. So you specifically examine the abdomen initially for just ascites or systemary Joseph nodules, which might indicate an underlying malignant cause. And then we specifically look for the liver. Is it enlarged? Is there a palpable gallbladder? Because keep in mind there's Corvosio's law, which says that a palpable, non-tender gallbladder in a patient with jaundice is unlikely due to be gallstones. Also keep in mind Murphy's sign, because people often confuse this with Corvosio's law. Murphy's sign diagnoses acute cholecystitis because it's a very tender gallbladder. The knowledge of the differential diagnosis of obstructive jaundice is essential to know what to look for and what to ask your patient about. So how can we interpret Corvosio's law differently in our setting or how do we interpret it in the hospital? So we don't we don't interpret Corvosio's law the way it is written. Um, so if you read it, it says that the cause of the jaundice is unlikely due to gallstones. So the way we interpret that is that it's a periampullary malignancy until proven otherwise. And because pancreatic cancer is the most aggressive malignancy, we always assume that it's a pancreatic cancer. Um, I always look at it and say we look at the worst case scenario first and you work backwards. And if it's not the worst case scenario, so much better for the patient. There is one benign condition that can give you a positive Corvosio's law, um, but it must really be put on the back burner because it mustn't be your first diagnosis, and that's chronic pancreatitis with stricturing around the distal common bile duct. Okay, so Prof, then what would your differential diagnosis then be for these patients with obstructive jaundice? So I divide them into intraluminal, intramural, and extramural causes. Okay, what are those diagnoses under intraductal? The most common one, and it's actually the most common cause of obstructive jaundice, are gallstones that are lodged in the biliary tree, so called cholidocolithiasis. Block stents are probably the next most common cause in our environment, but depending on where you are in the world, other causes such as the scars, worms, or similar parasites occur. Okay, and then in intramural? So intramural has both benign and malignant causes. Uh, the only malignant cause is cholangiocarcinomas, in other words, malignancy of the bile duct. Depending where it is, so if it's in the hilum or where the right and the left bile ducts join to form the common hepatic duct, it's called a proximal cholangiocarcinoma or a Klatskin tumor. And if in the periampillary area, it's called a distal cholangiocarcinoma. Um, bile duct strictures are associated usually with other medical conditions, such as primary spurs and cholangitis and ulcerative colitis. 
HIV and HIV cholangiopathy. Autoimmune diseases can also cause striction of the biliary tree. And what's also important to keep in mind, and this is where your history comes in, is previous surgical interventions, such as bile duct explorations or bypass procedures, where the anastomosis or the repair has strictured down. Okay, and then the last one there, extramural. So extramural causes are causes that obviously compress the bile ducts. So there are also benign and malignant causes here. So malignant causes are either the periampillary tumors, so the duodenal, the ampullary carcinoma, or the pancreatic cancer, or malignant lymph nodes, lymphomas, or metastatic lymph nodes, commonly from gastrointestinal tumors. But we also are finding more and more patients presenting with extra-abdominal tumors, such as breast cancer, that have metastasized to the periportal lymph nodes of the liver. Benign causes are most commonly pancreatic pseudocysts, and in our environment we also must keep in mind TB lymph nodes. So how would you go about investigating these patients? So we divide the special investigations into blood tests and radiological tests. So in terms of blood tests, what would you do for the, these patients? I would start by ordering some blood tests. Um, the first one in that battery would be a liver function test, which is to confirm the obstructive jaundice picture. An increased total bilirubin with a conjugated bili being above 70% of the total is usually diagnostic. However, in many cases, it's between 30 and 70% of the total, and that's where we then cast our eyes down to the ductal enzymes, of which the GGT is the most specific, but there's also the ALP, which are usually significantly raised and more raised than the AST and the ALT. Once we've confirmed our diagnosis, we then look at the what we call hepatocellular enzymes, AST and ALT. If they are raised, it's either due to acute cholangitis or chronic obstruction. And again, that's where the history comes in, as well as looking at the vital signs in the general exam. Other blood tests should include a urea and electrolytes, where we look for acute renal dysfunction, as well as the most common electrolyte abnormality in these patients, which is hyponatremia. Another test is the full blood count where we look for signs of infection with a raised white cell count and a low platelet count. Patients may also have an anemia of chronic disease, especially if they have an underlying malignancy. The fourth and last test that I would do in my initial workup is an INR where we're looking to either confirm or exclude a coagulopathy. And then in terms of radiological investigations, what would you consider? Always start with an abdominal ultrasound. And this is to confirm the dilated biliary tree and you will also find out the level of, of which the biliary tree is blocked and this can give you an idea of the potential causes of the obstruction. The ultrasound may actually even give you the cause of obstruction. So for example, if there's a gallstone lodged in the common bile duct, an ultrasound is a very effective tool to diagnose that. And uh, Prof, what are the other things you can look out for on an ultrasound? So there's the famous double duct sign, uh, which means there's a dilated common bile duct and a dilated pancreatic duct, which we interpret as being a pancreatic cancer. Head of pancreas cancers can be very difficult to diagnose in ultrasound because of the bile gas in the duodenum. So radiologists will often look at the body and tail of a pancreas to look for a dilated bile duct. Um, and then again, as I said, depending on the site or the level of obstruction, so if it's a hyalur obstruction, so you've got dilated bile ducts in the liver, but you've got a collapsed gallbladder and a collapsed CBD, then the obstruction is at the hilum of the liver. And the most common cause there is that it's a, a clad skin tumor. And we would investigate the patient for that further. Once we have the most probable diagnosis, what are our next steps? 
So I guess this is where the, the common algorithm of initial investigations for obstructive jaundice stops, because once you've got all of this, uh, you then need to decide on how you're going to proceed in the further either investigation or intervention of the patient. What I do really want to emphasize here is that an ERCP is not a diagnostic procedure and should not be classified in this area. An ERCP is only indicated if you have a clear reason to intervene on a pathology in the bile duct, such as you've seen a gallstone in the bile duct which needs to be removed. Going back to your original question. So once you have the initial results, you should have a pretty good idea of, of what's going on with your patient as well as to the urgency of the treatment that you need to put or arrange for the patient. So if there are red flags, the patient needs an urgent or a very early biliary drainage. If there are no red flags, though, you may have some, some time to for either if you need to investigate the patient further or to arrange an investigation. So for example, if that ultrasound did identify a stone in the common bile duct, that's an indication for an ERCP followed by a, an elective laparoscopic cholecystectomy. If in the absence of red flags there's a double duck sign, then you can proceed to a pancreatic protocol CT scan to look for that um, head of pancreas tumor. So what would your take-home message be for us and all the students listening? So obstructive jaundice is common. So wherever you practice one day, be it as a general practitioner or as a specialist, you will somewhere encounter patients with obstructive jaundice and hence you must know about it and you need to know it well. Most importantly is that you need to know what the red flags are, especially acute cholangitis, which can kill. And keeping all of this in mind, you need to know how to ask a relevant history and also how you start with investigations. Always start with an abdominal ultrasound and that panel of four blood tests, the LFT, the FBC, UNE and INR. And once you have all of that information, you proceed from there. So this is a great overview about obstructive jaundice. Thanks, Prof. I think we need to go and study a bit. For more detailed information about obstructive jaundice, listen to the Students of Surgery podcast on obstructive jaundice. The link to it is in the podcast notes. This has been another podcast in the What's Wrong With This Patient series. Be sure to like this episode and subscribe to the channel for updates and other material. If you found this podcast useful, why not listen to the Students of Surgery podcast series as well? Until the next patient, keep reading, keep examining and keep asking questions.